Hear now the word of God. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, when confronted by your word this morning, would you send your spirit to shape us into people who are brought low by your word, but then also raised up by your grace and by your promises? 
Would you help us this morning to hear from you truly and fully and completely? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, about a month ago, maybe it was a little longer, my daughter finished reading To Kill a Mockingbird. So we decided as a family, hey, this is a good excuse. We haven't watched this movie in forever. Our children have never seen it. So we watched To Kill a Mockingbird. And I have to be honest, it had been so long since I had read the book or since I had seen the movie. It was almost like a new, new story to me. And as I was watching, I was thinking about that moment where Tom Robinson, this African-American man, is accused of assaulting a woman. And as the trial is going on, it's shown that he physically would have been incapable of committing the crime. He didn't even have use of one of his hands, so he could not have committed this assault. And even though it was proved and even though it was shown that this was false... Uh, the, the trial continues on, and maybe you remember that part, that, that, that speech that probably made a thousand people go into law school after they heard it, that speech that Atticus Finch gives in defense of Tom Robinson. And after he gives that speech, I just remember thinking, and it wasn't very long ago that I thought this, I just thought, how is it that they could find Tom Robinson guilty after that speech? And then, of course, the moment in the movie comes, and this is my second week in a row spoiling a movie, but again, it's been out a while. So, so the, the, the jury goes away, and they come back, and you think you know what they're going to say. We find this man innocent, and Atticus Finch is the hero, and everything's happy, but it doesn't work out that way. Instead, in spite of the obvious lies on the part of Bob Ewell and his daughter, in spite of the clear innocence of this man, the jury returns after only a couple hours and they find Tob Robinson guilty with basically no evidence whatsoever, all because he was a black man in a white community. And it's this potent, painful ending to a story that you think is going to end well. You think it's going to be a display of justice and the real lesson of the movie is sometimes justice doesn't work out. And in our passage this morning, there's a reminder of the same principle as well. It doesn't matter how innocent you are. It doesn't matter how honest you are. It doesn't matter what the facts are. Sometimes the justice system just will not be on our side. And especially I have this in mind for us as Christians. Because that's what Paul is. Paul is here as a believer, as a Christian, not just as a generic Roman citizen, but as a Christian. And by now, you've probably become accustomed to Paul defending himself. What you've learned probably is the latter half of the book of Acts is Paul arguing his case before judge after judge after judge. And he's going to do the same next week, by the way. Spoiler alert. Since I'm spoiling things, I might as well do that. So our narrative this morning, though, takes us through three phases, and they will be our three points for the sermon. The, the three phases are prosecution, proclamation, and procrastination. Um, even more than the reality of injustice, our passage shows us something else, that when the gospel comes to someone, often their reaction is to be alarmed by what they hear, but we have to be very quick to learn that being alarmed by the message is not the same thing as being changed by the message. And that's what happens here in our passage. Someone is alarmed by it, but that doesn't mean that their heart has changed. 
So the first part of our narrative is the prosecution. This fellow Tertullus, uh, it just sounds like turtle. Let's just embrace it. Turtle, the prosecutor, the lawyer. Uh, He's a slick fellow. He's a slick and careful lawyer. And the very first thing he does is he makes sure that Felix likes him. Listen to the buttery speech that he gives. You know, Paul's speech is just, you have served a long time. That's the closest Paul gets to, <laughs> to a compliment. You have served a long time. And this fellow, though, Tertullus, he says, since through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Okay, we get it. You like Felix a lot. He really wants us to know and he wants Felix to know that he likes him a lot. History tells us that Felix's time was actually not that peaceful. This is flattery. Because if you compare the days of Felix and you compare the conflicts that took place and you compare them to other, uh, others in similar positions throughout history, you see that there was nothing especially peaceful about Felix's time. This is just flattery. And something that's totally missing when Paul speaks. But then Turtle is, is speaking and he makes two charges against Paul and these have to be the focus of Paul's response, which they are. And the first charge that he makes against Paul is sedition. We've heard this already, but the charge is that he's stirring up riots wherever he goes. This guy has trouble everywhere he shows up. He makes the Jews crazy. And of the two charges, this is probably the one that Felix is more concerned about. Because you can get away with a lot as a governor if people are paying their taxes and they aren't rioting. You can get away with a lot as a governor. But see, that's the problem because Tertullus tries to make this argument here that Paul is causing riots, that he is causing trouble where he goes. And we know this is a lie. We know there's no basis of truth here in all of this, because if you remember what happened in Jerusalem, Paul was minding his own business. He ended up being arrested because the Jews stirred up the crowd. This man is actually charging Paul with the sin of the Jewish leaders. And one of them, Ananias, is actually there, sitting there as these accusations are being made. Paul is being imputed with the sins of the Jewish leaders. He is being reckoned as somebody who did these crimes. That's the first charge. Then the second charge is the charge of desecration, right? Because in verse 6, he says, Paul even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. You see, see, they're the heroes, uh, Tertullus wants us to know that, that if it wasn't for him, this, this could have been so much worse. They stopped Paul from doing something that would have turned Jerusalem upside down. Just imagine if he'd gone through it. Imagine if he had desecrated the temple. Even in Rome, desecration would be a capital offense. So he knows this, right? The, the plan here is Paul needs to die. He needs to be removed. And so... Notice this about Tertullus, though. He brings plenty of claims and no evidence. No evidence whatsoever. The only evidence he presents is Paul. He points at Paul and he says, examine yourself and you'll figure out everything. This is so interesting. He's basically making Felix do his job for him. Right? He doesn't bring any evidence. He doesn't cross-examine Paul. He doesn't do anything like that. Instead, he comes with nothing, comes with no evidence, And he flatters Felix as if 
as if Felix is some sort of master detective. You're a smart man. Ask this guy a few questions and you'll have it all figured out. And it sort of puts this pressure on Felix that Felix probably doesn't even want to admit. I mean, think about this. The implication here is if Felix doesn't find something wrong with Paul, it's not Tertullus's fault. It's Felix's fault. It's Felix's fault. Maybe he's not a good ruler. Maybe he's not a good investigator. It's a very sly way of putting pressure on this man without actually threatening him. We live in a culture that does that. Um, The world has things that it wants us as Christians to affirm. Areas that they want us to bend on. Areas that they want us to adopt their ethics. And all the while, they say, oh, you're free. You're free to have your religion. You're free to worship. You're, You're free to believe what you want. At the same time, there is that unwritten, unspoken threat, sometimes unspoken. We just won't do business with you. We will just make sure that you are unemployed. We'll make sure you can't run for office. We'll make sure that you can't work in some sort of high-profile job. You'll never run uh, a Fortune 500 company. We will make sure of that if you don't adopt our ethics and think our way. But yes, you're free to have your religion. Sort of this implied pressure without the threat. And so we are very familiar with the kind of pressure that Turtleus is putting on Felix here. The non-threatening threat. Right? That's the world we live in now. Those threats are necessary because this man has no case. The facts aren't on his side. The prosecution makes the best case that it can... And if you were sitting there and you were listening to this, you might hear the accusations and think to yourself, oh, this is so serious. This thing that this man is accused of is so bad. Stirring up a crowd, rioting, desecration, how terrible. It sort of shows that in Proverbs 18, 17, what it says is accurate. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Well, that is precisely what they need because if they just go by what Tertullus says, people might be swayed because of the seriousness of what the accusation is. But that's what happens here. Tertullus is persuasive until Paul rises to speak. And so the first point this morning is the prosecution. The second point is proclamation. In verse 10, Felix looks at Paul, he gives him the nod, go ahead with your defense. And so Paul stands as an eyewitness and as his own defense lawyer in his own trial. One of the things I've learned from listening to debates, not so much watching courtroom dramas, but especially listening to debates, is that a good debater follows the argument the other person makes and makes sure that they respond to the points that they raise. A bad debater gets up and pretends that other person didn't say anything and they just filibuster and they talk for as long as they possibly can until they get cut off. That's a bad debater. Paul shows his own rhetorical training here. You actually see this guy may not be a trained lawyer, but he knows how to argue his case and he does. And so he stands as his own eyewitness, as his own defense lawyer and He uses the opportunity to sort of respond to the arguments that are made. The first thing he does is he responds to the charge of sedition. He says he wasn't arguing with anyone in Jerusalem. He says, in fact, he was laying low. He was keeping his head down. 
And the thing that Paul says, and it, it doesn't sound very persuasive until you think about it. He says there's no proof that he was starting a riot. Which is extraordinary if you think about it. The job of the prosecution is to show evidence that a crime was committed and then this person actually committed the crime. All this man has brought is accusations. That's all he's got. All he's got is assertions of the guilt of Paul, but he hasn't brought a shred of evidence. Second, Paul says he's innocent of the charge of desecration as well. And the reason he says he could just say they don't have any evidence, which is true. But instead, he actually says, I'm not an enemy of the Jewish people. And he makes this argument. It's a, it's a theological argument. He says, he says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So the argument here that he's making is, why would I desecrate this place when I have no theological motivation to do so? I have no problem with the temple. And this, of course, brings the question, if Paul's innocent, if he's done no wrong, if Paul is in chains standing before Felix, why is that? How could he be here? And Paul's version of things is he says, I was minding my own business. I was being purified in the temple. I was making no trouble. And a group of people accused me of something. The problem is those Jews who accused me are not here to prove their claim. If he's causing trouble, they need to be here. They need to bring their testimony. And so Paul points this out. He says, I'm not guilty of sedition. There's no evidence against me. He's not guilty of desecration because not only would he have no reason to do that, but there is no evidence he even tried. In fact, even the day when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, they could have said, okay, where's the Gentile he brought in here? And they wouldn't have been able to produce him because he wasn't with the Gentile in the court of the Jews. So, so Paul recounts the only thing that he publicly said when he stood before the council, and this did get them riled up. He said, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So he's, he's giving everything He's giving everything to Felix that there is for Felix to have. He's giving him everything that there is. And that's what this is really about. Felix, you're being used. You're sitting as judge in a theology trial that's been dressed up to look like it's about sedition. They are using the government to make the, the, the to, 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 to protect them, basically. So, so Paul's defense is, I'm innocent. There's no proof I've done anything. This is about a theology debate that you have found yourself right in the middle of. These guys cannot win the theology debate with me. So they've cooked up these charges against me. And they've used their legal dream team and brought them all the way from Jerusalem just to make sure they get this conviction. That's how committed they are. It's just a pity they didn't bring any evidence with them. But Paul tells the truth when he's called upon to do so. He even includes information that might not have helped him. It might not have helped that he included his comment that he made about the resurrection. And yet he knows he really said it. And he believes that Felix should have that information. And the application I would make here is very straightforward. We must tell the truth. Uh, if we're accused of some sort of wrongdoing, and if we've done something wrong, we should admit it. We should have a reputation for admitting when we are wrong so that when we are innocent, 
people will believe us. I used to go to school with a kid and everything he was ever accused of, he always denied it. He was a bad kid. (laughs) He was a bad kid. And the teachers and the parents and everybody learned never to believe him. They just knew, don't believe that kid. He never tells the truth. We need to be people who have a good reputation as honest people who will even swear to our own hurt and admit when we've done something that's wrong. But look at that, the contrast now between Paul and Tertullus, right? Tertullus is slick. He's a great speaker. He butters up the judge and compare him to Paul. Paul is this man who's self-admittedly not a great speaker. He says, I did not come to you with great eloquence. He writes that to the Corinthians. Paul stands up. He gets right to his defense. He makes his case very plainly. He doesn't just tell the truth, though. And this is the key here. This is the really important thing that I, I don't want us to move on too quickly from. He uses this opportunity to preach about the resurrection. He doesn't just defend himself. But he knows God has brought me to this Roman courtroom, this court of law surrounded by these important people for more than just to defend myself. He's brought me here to make sure these people hear the gospel and they know my commitment to the gospel is the reason why I'm standing in front of them right now. And doesn't that remind us just how important it is that we as Christians actually speak up when we have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody? Uh, in our culture, people hear the, the, the side that opposes Christianity. It's the voice that is the most prominent around us. But people need to hear the other side. And if, and if we don't, If we don't speak, if we don't tell the truth, if we don't speak about Jesus when we have an opportunity to, people may likely be left with only one presentation of a false message. Uh, And what that means is we need to tell people about Jesus when we have an opportunity. I think you would be shocked, perhaps. Depends on how well-traveled you are, you know. I think you would be shocked by how many people out there, and even in our own community, have truly... And, and I, I don't mean the word literally like uh, the way it sometimes get, gets abused, but literally never heard the gospel message. They've never heard the gospel. They don't even know who Jesus is beyond a swear word. And I'm not joking there either. Um, a couple years ago, some fellow classmates and I at RTS, we went to Heinz Community College and we walked the campus and we... Uh, we just started asking people, hey, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know the gospel? And the first thing that surprised me was how willing people are to talk about God in public. I thought they would be, well, some of them seemed embarrassed, but a lot of them were like totally willing and totally open to talking about God and talking about religion and talking about Christianity. And the thing that surprised me the most from doing that was the people who said, I do not know what you're talking about. I don't even know... I don't even know who God is. And they said, my, my parents never took me to church. You know, I never had any friends that went to church. Nobody ever taught me about God. Um, you know, and, and they weren't joking with us. They weren't, they weren't saying, no, that's, I'm just kidding. But it was very, very real. And so the thing that surprised me the most, and I think may surprise you as well, is there are people out there in Mississippi, the Bible Belt. They're on the buckle of the Bible Belt. 
And they do not know the gospel because their parents never told them. And they never ran into anybody else who would ever tell them. So why would they know? Jesus is just a swear word to them. They know what the TV says and they know what the internet says, which is not helpful. (laughs) At all of my secular jobs that I ever had, especially when I was going to college in Phoenix, I worked with tons of unbelievers. And these people did not have a clue. See, I think sometimes we have in our heads this idea that the world rejects the gospel. And I don't think the world rejects the gospel because the world has to have something to reject first. And they haven't heard it. And they haven't heard it because we're bashful to say it. And so in large parts of the world, the world doesn't know because we don't go and we don't tell. And all the while we're thinking they hate the gospel. They hate the gospel when they haven't heard the gospel. They can't reject it if they don't hear it, and they won't hear it if we're too timid to share it. So our default assumption when we go out into the world actually needs to change. We need to change our idea of the world as being gospel rejectors to people who need to hear it in the first place. The culture we live in is like a foreign mission field, and it is increasingly becoming like that. And so this is so important to remember. God put Paul in that court of law, not only so he could defend himself, but so that he could tell them the gospel and tell them about the resurrection and tell them about Jesus. And God has put us in the world to do the same thing. He's put us in the world to present the other side that those people are not hearing. And so if we who believe it don't tell, who is going to? And so, yes, Tertullus brought the prosecution in point one. But as we've seen, Paul answers the falsehoods with proclamation. He tells the truth. He tells the truth. Third this morning, we have procrastination. So Felix hears Paul make his case. And then Luke makes a very fascinating statement. He says Felix has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And the way, of course, is what they called Christianity back then. Well, even if Felix isn't a master theologian, this at least means that Christianity's made some major inroads into the Roman Empire. Felix has some familiarity with it. Admittedly, it's hard to know. How does Felix's knowledge of Christianity move him to actually uh, uh, make this delayed decision? It It says that he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way, and so he told Paul, come back later. Um... It could be that he knows the way, and, and it could be that he, that, that he knows the way doesn't hate Judaism, and it could be that he knows that the way doesn't want to destroy Judaism, but it could be that he's got a twisted understanding of Christianity, and, and it could be that maybe, since his wife is Jewish, that he has an issue with it. We don't know. Luke doesn't spell out anymore why it is that his knowledge of Christianity is important, But all we know is he decides to put off the prosecution and the defense because of some prior knowledge of Christianity that he has. And so Felix says, let's wait for Lysias. If you remember last week, Lysias was the tribune who decided that Paul had better go to Caesarea because these guys are going to assassinate him. So he was the one that responded to the threat on Paul's life. Uh, Felix thinks to himself, well, if anybody's going to be able to help me sort out this thing, maybe I can even blame it on him. Lysias will be the man. And so while they're waiting for Lysias, Paul has some freedoms. He's, he's allowed to have visitors. 
He's kept fairly comfortable. And in the meantime, Paul finds himself meeting privately with Felix and privately with Drusilla. Uh, We have some idea of the content of these conversations as well. Luke says they heard him speak about faith in Christ. And then Luke says he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And so the, 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 the really nice thing about this situation is Paul has this opportunity with less of a rush on him to give a healthy, well-rounded, robust understanding of the gospel. One of my favorite things uh, of, about working with people who are unbelievers, which I don't do it much anymore because, well, I, you know, I'm in a church now. But one of my favorite things when I worked with unbelievers was you don't have to rush to the part where you call on them to make a profession of faith or something because you have time together. You have a lot of opportunities to have integrity, to show integrity in your life and then tell them about who Jesus is. And for them to see that this is not just a one time thing and it's not just like a sales thing where you're trying to make the pitch and get a response from them. But you actually they get to observe your life and observe how you live on a consistent basis. And that's sort of what Paul gets here. Paul gets time. And he's able to share the gospel in a fuller way. And so Jesus is keeping this promise that he made to his disciples. He said, you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And that is precisely what's happened here. Paul is here and he's being faithful. And part of the way we know that Paul is being faithful is because of Felix's response. Because Luke tells us, Felix, here's what Paul says. And he is alarmed. A gospel message that unsaved people like is probably not a gospel message. Sometimes I hear secular people, they have a very rough understanding of Christianity, and they'll say, Jesus preached about peace and love and equality. I like Jesus. And if that's all they think the gospel is, if they think the gospel is just about their social issues, they will not be alarmed by that message. They're going to like that message. But see, that's not the gospel. Because Felix, we know Felix hears the gospel because he doesn't like what he hears. He is alarmed. And he, but he isn't alarmed into following Christ. Uh, instead, he puts it off. He procrastinates. Uh, it seems that Lysias never arrives and Paul just sits in prison for two years. But the reality is, Felix has an emotional response to the gospel, and it doesn't save him. Uh, When I was a kid, I don't know what happened, but something about the late 90s, haunted houses just became huge in my little town I I grew up in. I've told you, I I grew up in a town with about 4,000 people in it. And haunted houses just happened one year, tons of them. And and I went to some of them, and they were absolutely terrifying. But I remember the Baptist church in town one year decided, we're going to fight back. We're going to have a hell house. I don't know if you've ever been to a hell house before, but um, they can be tame and they can be terrifying. It just depends on if they got really deranged people in the church helping put this thing together. And uh, I think think the, the church in town had some very deranged folks and they, uh, they put together a hell house that made the haunted houses look scary. And the kids came to school the next day and told all of us how absolutely terrifying the hell house was. 
And it's just one macabre scene after another. And then you get to the end and they go, you don't have to go through all this if you just believe in Jesus. And there were kids that came to school absolutely terrified of the idea of going to hell because of this place. And yet I don't think any of them got saved. Um, Just because the message of the gospel causes an emotional reaction doesn't mean the person's heart has been touched by God. It means they've had an emotional experience. Um, I went to a church that did altar calls. And at the end of sermons, I remember uh, numerous friends during my teenage years weeping and praying sinners' prayers. They were emotionally moved by the appeals of the gospel combined with the organ that was playing over the conclusion. And people were called to the front and people were weeping and they were crying. I remember one friend in particular And I remember him walking the aisle and I remember being sort of towards the back and thinking, oh, my goodness, I have a Christian friend now. It's not easy to find sometimes, especially in a small school. There were 16 in my class. I saw him walk the aisle, come to the front. About two weeks later, he was back to his old life. Everything was back to normal. Um, You know, last time I was on Facebook, it looked like he was not saved. Just a... Another person not walking with the Lord. So you see over and over again in life people who have emotional responses to the gospel and yet there's absolutely no life change. And Felix teaches us here that an emotional response is not necessarily a gospel response. We may feel, we may have our emotions moved, but that is not the same thing as having our heart changed by Jesus Christ or being quickened to love the Lord. So what happens? Paul sits in legal limbo for two years. He could end his imprisonment. It's implied if he would just pay the bribe, pay the bribe, Paul. But scripture forbids him to pay the bribe. He's trying to live with integrity even as he sits and rots in prison. And Paul refuses to pervert justice just so that he can be released. It may be expedient, but Paul says, I would rather do what is right. And so he spends years in indefinite detention. He doesn't know how long this is going to go on. And he would rather be there. He would rather be there than compromise himself. And so he does stay there until there's a new governor whose name is Festus and we'll meet him next week. But the truth is there was no evidence against Paul. Felix should have released him. As the governor, this is a man in authority. He's the one who can make this call. And yet he was cowardly and didn't want to take the blame. And so justice wasn't served. And Paul sat and he rotted in prison. And one of the applications I would make for all of us is this. As Christians, we shouldn't expect or be surprised that the justice system doesn't work in our favor. We shouldn't be surprised When the wheels of justice turn against us as Christians. Think about this. Paul sits in legal limbo for two years. No trial. No conviction. As far as the law is concerned, he's an innocent man. We see this around the world. Asia Bibi was only just recently released from Pakistan. She sat in prison for 10 years without being convicted. There are Chinese Christians right now, as we speak, at this very second, and they are sitting in cold jail cells. And there is no charge against them. They are just sitting there, and they might sit there for the rest of their lives. 
It is happening around the world right now. Justice does not always work out for Christians. And I know, I know in the moment right now in our country, Christians feel very secure. We feel something of a reprieve because we like the makeup of the Supreme Court, you know, and we think, well, they're like a shield that's going to protect us. And, and sometimes people vote people into office just because all they care about is the Supreme Court. We put all our hope on this one office in the land. And it does provide checks and balances on other branches of the government, but... We should not expect that government favor is going to continue forever. We should not assume that is the norm. We should not assume that freedom of religion is the default for Christians. We should thank God for it when we have it. But we have to remember that God doesn't promise us that everywhere we live will have that sort of freedom. The truth is we as Christians need to prepare for the day when tax exemptions for churches are removed. We should prepare for the day when the government sees us as a drag and not a help on society. We should prepare for ministers to eventually lose their housing allowances. We should prepare for the day where churches are treated as for-profit organizations. And we should really expect it if there are ministers out there wearing $4,000 Yeezy sneakers in the pulpit living in multi-million dollar mansions, which is happening. (laughs) These things are not going unnoticed by the watching world. So my application there is expect that justice won't always work in our favor. It has not been the norm for most of church history, and it is not the norm for Christians in most of the world. I would conclude by saying this. Felix responds with unbelief and procrastination. Look, unbelief should both surprise us and it should also not surprise us. There's a sense in which unbelief shouldn't surprise us because we know what people's hearts are like in Scripture. We know that without the Spirit, people will say no to God. And we know that we would have said no if God hadn't changed our hearts and given us new birth. We we know that at the deepest level, people do resist this alarming message that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. That is an alarming message to hear. And something within all of us fights back when we hear it. But you know, there's another sense in which unbelief should surprise us. It should surprise us when someone says no to the gospel. Because when someone says no to the gospel, that means this person is saying no to true hope, true meaning, true joy. They're saying no to forgiveness. They're saying no to purpose. It's sort of like a starving person who says no to food. You know, it should surprise us if we meet a starving person who says, no, thank you. I don't want food. Um, it, in, in Arizona, people would come sometimes stumbling out of the deserts, barely alive, dehydrated, almost dead. Imagine if you found somebody like that and they didn't want water. That should really surprise you. You would think something was loose in their head. And yet it happens every day when the gospel gets presented and people say no. And so in that sense, unbelief really should shock us. It really should shock us. Here's what I would say as we part today. Maybe you've been procrastinating. 
Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you've heard it all your life. Maybe you've been putting off having peace with God for one reason or another. I want you to see this. The warning is here. You don't know how long you have. You don't know that you'll get another chance to respond to the gospel. So do it today. Don't settle for an emotional response either. Don't settle for alarm or fear and assume that means you're a Christian. It doesn't mean that. It might mean that you're alarmed and it might mean that you're afraid. But it doesn't mean that you're converted. So obey the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know that unbelief is not just a problem out there. But you know that even in our own hearts, we struggle to really believe. Would you help us to hear the alarming message of Paul that there is coming a judgment? That you really will hold us all accountable for how we lived. And would you help us to put our trust in Christ, not in governments, not in courts, not in passing solutions, but in your very son. In whose name, even this morning we pray. Amen.